everybody. Morning, Dennis. <laughs> Somebody knows me. Dennis, holy, holy cow. Um, yeah, that scares the wee wall out of me. Um, my name's Tim Suttle, and um, I'm glad to get to be here with you this morning. I'm the pastor of a church called Redemption Church, but once upon a time, I, I worked at Lakeland um, long, long ago. Yeah, man. And I actually pre- um, preached, I think I preached for the first time ever at Lakeland. It was a long time ago. Um, I still have it on tape. It was, it was awful. Um, and I hope this is better. But I make no guarantees. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to get to be here, though, and share a little bit of what's, what God's doing in me. Um, and so that's all I'm, I'm really hoping to do this morning. One of my heroes in the faith is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody a Bonhoeffer fan? Anybody know about him a little bit? Bonhoeffer was a German pastor from a very prominent family, had this crazy talented family. His father was a famous doctor. He was the leading psychiatrist in all of Germany. And his mother was the daughter of a countess, like a straight up real countess. And his brother Carl was a physicist who was actually on the team with Einstein, the team that first split the atom in Germany. It's crazy talented family. And so when Dietrich decided to become a pastor, it was a huge disappointment to his family. They couldn't figure out why he'd want to waste his life like that, which I try not to take personally, being that I'm a pastor. But um, true to form, he, um, Dietrich, just like everybody else in his family, kind of rose to the top of leadership in the German church very quickly. He, was, he got his PhD by the time he was 22, wrote this phenomenal um, dissertation called Sanctorum Communio. Communio. I've read it. It's amazing. It's still published to this day. Um, and, but he became a pastor, and this would turn out to be especially difficult because of the time in which he was a pastor and where he was. He was in Germany during World War II. And interestingly, Bonhoeffer had spent earlier in his life a year in America. It was 1930 when he came to America, and he went to Union Theological in New York City and was teaching it. It's kind of funny when you hear his opinion of Americans from that time because he thought Americans were a bunch of weenies and lightweights, especially theologically. They didn't know how to work very hard. They, wanted, they just wanted to sit around and talk about psychology and how they felt and um, love the social gospel, but not the um, tough, hard theology, especially German theology. But he did find um, the black church, and he loved the American black church and would get, he went to he began attending a church in Harlem called Abyssinian Baptist Church and just lo- fell in love with the people started teaching Sunday school there every day and he fell in love especially with their music and so he bought all these albums of negro spirituals at the time and took them back to Germany they actually became um, kind of part of the fuel that held the church together through the years of the Nazi regime was this music that Dietrich Bonhoeffer brought to the Confessing Church. So after his year in America, Bonhoeffer returned to Germany and to find that Hitler's people were infiltrating all of the positions of power within the German Lutheran Church. And within a couple of years, the German church, we're talking about the, the original Lutheran Church, right? We're talking about Reformation Central. Within a couple of years, it had become a de facto arm of the Third Reich. This was incredibly difficult for Bonhoeffer because he felt like he had given up everything for the church, all this, his family prestige and connections and the money that he could have, the influence he could have had if he would have gone their way. He had given that up. And so Bonhoeffer decided he couldn't be a part of a church anymore if it was going to bow to Hitler. 
And he gave this famous radio address on German public radio. Um, and it, back then, radio was, was still, it was the prime way, prime media um, was the radio. And it, this was on prime time on the German public radio. This was everywhere. This is like being on the Oprah show, right? Everybody's going to see this. And he gives this famous address where he f- basically calls the Nazi party leaders out as false leaders. He calls them false leaders and says, and, and then, he, then after that, they, it's interesting, he was, while he was giving the speech, at some point toward the end, the SS had finally got there and cut off the speech. They, they unplugged it so he couldn't actually finish it. Then after that, um, he signed something called the Barman Declaration. You may have heard of the Barman Declaration. It's this, this document written by Karl Barth that basically said as things were changing in Germany and as, as the Third Reich took over the church, it said that they believed that Christ, not the Fuhrer, was the true head of the church. And you didn't get to say that sort of thing back then. And so he, Bonhoeffer and all of his friends were driven out of all positions of power within the church. And so they started their own communities, their own church they called the Confessing Church. It was an underground church. And Bonhoeffer um, started and led their seminary. And so he trained all these pastors for the Confessing Church church and had to do this in secret, had to go out in the middle of the country and kind of hide from the Nazis. Eventually, the Gestapo was after him. They found him. They shut down his seminary. They intimidate him and harass him and his family, arrest him and question him. Finally, it looked like they were going to send him to prison. But his friends from his confessing church and from Union Theological in America decided we got to get Bonhoeffer out. He can't, he can't go to a prison camp. And so they snuck him out through Switzerland and then England and brought him to New York City and told him, stay there. Just wait out the war. Stay in New York City. You have a place to teach. They'll take care of you. When the war's over, you can come back and help us rebuild the German church. But Bonhoeffer there in New York City was miserable, miserable. And he was alone. He felt isolated. He felt like he had been running away and deserting his friends. And if you read his journals during this time, it's very interesting. Very, he was just a tortured soul for that time he spent in the U.S. Felt like he had abandoned all of his friends. And so he wrote this in his journal. I want to read this to you. He says, I've had the time to think and pray about my situation and that of my nation and to have God's will for me clarified. And I've come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people. My brothers in the Confessing Synod wanted me to go. They may have been right in urging me to do so, but I was wrong in going. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose. He's going to choose to will the defeat of his nation. But he says, but I cannot make that choice in security. So Bonhoeffer, he was out. He was out before the Nazis started cleansing the church and sending people off to concentrations, tra- concentration camps. But he says, I can't, I can't do it. I can't stay here in safety um, because that's not where the kingdom is. And so he sailed for Germany, became part of the Abwehr and the underground resistance to Hitler. He's part of that famous Valkyrie plot, you know, that you've probably heard about to try to kill Hitler. And four years later, he was killed by the SS in a prison camp. And I think Bonhoeffer teaches us something crucial about our faith. 
his big realization was that there is no way to follow God, no way to participate in the life of Jesus and remain in security, in safety. And following Jesus requires us to become vulnerable. And I think Bonhoeffer was tapping into something absolutely critical, I mean essential, to what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be a a Christian. I'm talking about the very nature of the gospel here. What it means to follow after God has to do with this idea of vulnerability. I mean, just think about the life of Jesus. Think about everything you know about this man, about his, his teaching, his parables, the scenes that you know from his life. Just call all of that to mind. And if you think about it, nearly everything he ever did was either an expression of his own vulnerability or an act of solidarity with other vulnerable people. I mean, vulnerability is is central to the life of Jesus. If you take all the vulnerable stuff away from the stories of his life and teaching, there's hardly anything left. In the Gospel of Luke, actually, there's this interesting progression of stories. You're probably familiar with all of them. The the first one is um, Jesus' baptism in the wilderness. You know that story? Him and John, he goes out to John the Baptist who's baptizing people, and he goes into the Jordan River, and he's put under the water, and the, the sky, it says, is ripped open, schizoed, it's torn open, and the voice of God comes down, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and rests on him. It says, listen to this guy. This, this, this is my son. Listen to him. And then after that, there's this other story of Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth. You know, he goes to his hometown, has his little opening press conference for his life, and he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. You remember that? that he, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You know that text? Anointed me to preach good news to the poor and release to the captive, recovery of sight for the blind, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's his coming out part. It's very interesting. You have these two stories. You have his baptism on one hand, and then you have his, his coming out party, his first act of ministry, and it, sandwiched in between those things is the story of his 40 days in the wilderness. And apparently for Jesus, being called and anointed wasn't enough. He had to have this experience, this, this wilderness time of vulnerability. He had to become vulnerable through his time in the wilderness. Let me read this story to you. It's from Luke 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. He's quoting a psalm there. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Y'all ever heard of Henry Nowen? I'm I'm sure since Wilma, you know Dan's nickname is Wilma, right? 
You should call him Wilma. Since, since Wil, Wilma is a, he's the one who introduced me, um, one of the guys who introduced me to Henry Now, and I'm sure you've heard of him. Now writes a lot about this um, parable in a, in a book called, or about this story in a book called In the Name of Jesus. He says that the temptations Jesus faced are, there are actually three discrete ones. And he says they're, they're the temptations to be relevant, powerful, and spectacular. And I kind of want to use those three words as a lens to look through this story. The first thing the tempter says to Jesus is, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And now one calls this the temptation to be relevant. If you think about it, Jesus hadn't had anything to eat for 40 days. What's the only thing that could matter to him at that point? Food, right? He needs food. So to turn the stones to bread was to address the pressing concern of the moment to do the relevant thing, to be relevant. It's funny, as a pastor, I fight this battle constantly because in the American church, especially among evangelicals, relevance is just assumed as a virtue, right? You have to be relevant. There's actually this magazine called Relevant. Anybody ever read Relevant magazine? I mean, it went from not existing to one of the two or three biggest Christian periodicals in the world in just a very short amount of time because they called it relevant and it was all about relevance. One of the worst things you can say about somebody is they're no longer relevant. You have to be up on all the pressing issues of the day. You have to be making an impact. So Jesus here is hungry, he's suffering, he's vulnerable and the first thing the tempter offers him is a quick way out of the pressing issue of the moment. A quick way out of the suffering and the vulnerability but he doesn't take it. He refuses to step out of his own vulnerability because I think he knows the kingdom only comes through vulnerability. And it seems kind of like a small temptation. You know, you're hungry, alleviate the hunger, alleviate the suffering. Just turn this little piece of stone into bread. Let the relevant concerns of the moment derail the, the, the mission of God by just alleviating our own vulnerability. Now one says this about it. He says, I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. I think that's brilliant. I'm just convinced that he's right. Because the power to change the world does not subsist in relevance. It subsists in vulnerability. I mean, think of it this way. If all Jesus had to offer the world was his own vulnerability. What makes any of us think we have more than this to offer? Vulnerability is essential to the love of God. It's essential to the kingdom of God. God's love is always vulnerable. Um, and, and so this is the pattern of how we live. I, I see this play out most often in my marriage. My wife, Chris, and I have been together. We, I think our first date was maybe 25 years ago. And um, we hardly ever get to the end of a fight anymore. I've just noticed this. We, we don't ever get to the end because we've trained over the years that somewhere in the middle of the fight, we're both looking for our own vulnerability. You know, you, you almost never fight about what you're fighting about. It's really about some deeper vulnerability. So as soon as we spot it, as soon as I spot what is, has me wigged out at the moment and I confess it to her, to her, the fight's over. Right? So this happened to us just the other day. We're fighting. We do this fairly regularly. And um, so we're having this heated moment. We're right in the middle. We're in the thick of it. She's going at it for me and I'm going at it for her. And in the middle of it, I just stopped. 
And it wasn't just because I was losing, although I was totally losing. I mean, I was, I was getting crushed in this fight. But so I stopped and I said, you know what? I'm not even really upset about that, this. And I confessed this vulnerability that I was feeling about. I was worried about this whole other thing because it was making me feel um, vulnerable. My wife was on it. She puts her arms around me. The fight is over right? She makes my vulnerability her vulnerability. And all the evil and the pain and the power of that situation just dissipates. I mean, it just evaporates. That's the power of vulnerability. It has way more power than any other mode of healing. Vulnerability has, has more power than any other kind of power that we can muster in and of ourselves. So Jesus, in reply to this temptation, he, he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. It's, it's, it's a throwaway line from Deuteronomy. It's just a simple response. He's saying there's more to the kingdom of God than just the relevant thing, the issue of the day. And so Jesus, in this, this temptation here, he's being tested. Is he going to use relevance to bring about his kingdom, or is he going to bring it about through vulnerability, the kind of vulnerability that would one day take him even to the cross? The next temptation, um, the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, look, I'll give this all to you. I have all of this power. I can give you all of the power that you want. Quick caveat, you just got to bend your knee to me one time, just a quick little bow, and then I'll give you whatever you want. Now one calls this the temptation to be powerful. I will give you the kingdoms of the world. And it's a real question here. I mean, will Jesus power up? Will he raise an army and kill the Romans? and get what they all want, which is a little bit of freedom and autonomy, and they want a king. Will he become the king? And the tempter, tempter comes to him and says, look, I can see what you're doing. I'm pretty sure where this thing is headed, that you're, where you're trying to take everybody, I'll save you some time. You can have all of the power with none of the suffering, right? And I'll just, I'll just give it to you. And it's a gut check for Jesus, a, a temptation to gain power, illegitimate power, without having to suffer to get it. Now one says this about it. He says, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. I think that's a stunning thing to say. What makes the temptation to power so irresistible for us is that it offers us an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Because love is sheer vulnerability. And it's much easier to control people than it is to love them. And it's much easier to try to be God in a situation than to wait on God. Control is way easier than love because love makes you vulnerable, right? Love means people can reject you. They can Um, take advantage of you, make you look like a fool. It's so much easier to try to control people than to love. If you don't believe me, just think back to your high school dating relationships, right? These are about control, not love, right? I I see this actually a lot as I watch people um, parenting their kids. I mean, think about it. Those of you who have kids, how are you going to lead your kids when you no longer have all the power? How are you going to pull that off? When they're young, it's easy. You've got size and position. You can, I mean, you can literally pick them and redirect them, right? You, you have complete control. How are you going to lead your kid when you can't pick them up anymore, you know? Or when they hit adolescence and you no longer have all the power or all of the influence. If that's all you've got, size and position, when you have teenagers, you know, you're going to struggle 
When parents only know how to use power and control to lead, when they don't know how to lead through their own vulnerability and love, it's going to get rough later on. Because love is about vulnerability. And we have to learn this as parents. We have to learn this as wives and husbands, as coworkers, as friends, as neighbors. And it's interesting to me that Jesus' reply to this temptation, he says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. His response is a shorthand Shema. Have you heard of the Shema? Hear, O Israel. You know this, this text? It's, it's basically, the, it was the Jewish, or still is, the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the Lord alone. You should love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. You know this? Okay, so this is just a shorthand for that. He, and, and so what he's saying here when he says, um, worship the Lord to God, serve him only, he's saying even powering up for a good reason, for something good, is to risk serving some other authority. And Jesus recognizes no other authority in his mission. He re, he, his response is to just to love God wholeheartedly. He refuses to become powerful to bring about the kingdom of God. He embraces powerlessness. Essentially what he's saying to the tempter here is, it's a lie, and I know it. You don't have power over the kingdoms of the world. You, you might, it might look like what you have is power. Really what you have is control. You have some control, and that's all you have to offer. But the power to change the world comes through vulnerability. The last test is this one. It says, the devil took him to Jerusalem, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, which seems like an odd thing. You know, why, why would he ask him to do that? And then he quotes these psalms about the Messiah that God will send angels to protect him. Now one calls this the temptation to become spectacular, to do something that would win him great applause. I mean, Jesus was absolutely capable of doing this. Why didn't he do it? It's not like it was sinful. He could, have, he could have jumped and been all right. Why didn't he do it? Now it says he, he does it because he refused to entertain with miracles. You know, there, there are no shortcuts to the kingdom. You know this, right? Like you can't snap your fingers and, and turn into a disciple. You can't just follow Jesus because you decide to. Like, this, this takes a lifetime. And if you want to know Jesus, it's going to hurt a little. If you want to follow Jesus, vulnerability is absolutely required. And this is a huge question for me, really, for all of us, because of the time in which we live. I mean, we live in an age when the spectacular is big in our culture. And the question, really, for us in our time is, in a world where the spectacular is king, who will dare to do a small thing faithfully without the press release, right? Without posting it on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. I mean, our culture will constantly dare us to attempt the spectacular. Real challenge isn't the spectacular. Real challenge is to risk being faithful to God in obscurity when nobody's looking, when nobody will see it but you and maybe just one or two people who you love and who you are, have been put here to love. Who will dare to follow Jesus when no one is looking? Anybody who has been married, you've, you've bumped up against this. Surely you have. Or if you've been in a job for a long time, you've, you've run into this. The challenge is never the crisis. The challenge is never the spectacular moment. Um, the challenge is the day-to-day. That's where love happens. It's the moment to moment to live in fidelity to a spouse who's less than perfect, to, to work hard for a boss 
who's out of town at the time, to get up and go to work and work at a job. It's not immediately clear why this matters to the world, right? But you do it anyway, because you gotta, you gotta do something with your life and you gotta put some food on the table and take care of your family, right? Our culture loves the spectacular and completely ignores and devalues the ordinary thing. Jesus seemed to just know the ordinary was the good stuff, the ordinary thing. And so he says, don't put the Lord to the test. I mean, basically, it's a dismissive, dismissive thing. He says, I'm not, I'm not even going to go there with you. And so the kingdom would come not through a military leader or a king. It would come through an ordinary Jewish carpenter from backwoods Galilee. I mean, he was from Greenwood, you know? <laughs> Nowhere. A vulnerable man from nowhere. How many, and you think about the church. How many times will we fall for this temptation to be spectacular? How many times will we spend all of our time chasing the spectacular, thinking this is how the kingdom comes? We've got to have some big, huge thing, right? And our culture will give us endless, our culture is the tempter, right? You know this. Our culture is the tempter. It will give us endless chances to be relevant to be powerful, to be spectacular. And the kingdom of God does not come through those things. And our pathway to God does not come through those things. Our pathway to God comes the same path that Jesus took. It's the path of vulnerability. These temptations that Jesus faced, you know, they're the, they're the same temptations that we face as we try to follow in the way of Jesus and have some sort of impact on the world around us. And there are churches all over the city right now, this morning, just busting their humps to be relevant and to be powerful, spending millions of dollars hiring talent and buying equipment all to put on a Sunday program that is nothing short of spectacular, and they are spectacular. I mean, they are ready for TV good. But it's, it's simply not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes through vulnerability. Maybe this is why Jesus' characteristic call to his followers was take up your cross and follow me. It's a call to vulnerability. After Bonhoeffer's first trip to America, he started to kind of critique American Christianity publicly and wrote about it a little bit. And he said really that the problem was we at all in America, we had been raised in this story that our country was founded by people who were fleeing religious persecution. Right? They came here to the new world so that they could worship in peace, right? And they, they, they were all, we, we have all been weaned on this narrative that our country was established by a bunch of Christians who came here to flee persecution so they could just worship God freely without being killed. And Bonhoeffer said whether that's true or not is immaterial. What happened is this narrative had convinced all of us that it was possible to follow Jesus without having to suffer. We had, we had forsaken the final step and what it means to be a Christian. And he says, you can't do it. There's no following Jesus without suffering. Because to follow Jesus is to receive the vulnerability of Christ. And then to join in solidarity and love with those people who are vulnerable in the world. You know what, I, this is what I think. Honestly, this is as honest as, as I can be. The choice to follow Jesus for all of us is a choice to undergo our lives in the world without the benefit of anesthesia. You're going to feel everything. You're going to feel 
everything. To become our most vulnerable selves is to live our lives without the crutches that we use to prop up our emotional instability. Without the artificial, artificial fillers we use to fill up the space inside us that's reserved for God alone. To live without the spiritual pacifiers, you know, that do not nourish us but just keep us quiet. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to learn to go without these things. We have to undergo our lives without the benefit of anesthesia. We're going to feel everything. And this is how the kingdom comes. And this is the only way the kingdom comes. It's really interesting when you think about this parable of Jesus and, and the three temptations that we, he was faced with that day. He gets to all of them eventually, you know. He ends up doing all this. Although he refused to turn stones to bread on that day, later on he did feed the hungry. He did make bread miraculously appear, right? Although he refused political power on that day, he did continually proclaim the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God. It's his central message. Uh, it's just that his kingdom comes not at the tip of the sword, but through the wise practice of justice and peace and vulnerability. And although he refused to, to jump off the temple to be spectacular to see if God would catch him, he went to the cross doing just that. I mean, he died the way you and me die, trusting that God would raise him from the dead. He did take the leap, but not as a way of testing God, right? But rather just in obedience to God's calling for his life. Everything the tempter tested him that day with, Jesus would get to eventually. The what of his life turned out to be exactly the same. It was always the how that mattered. And it's the how that matters for most of us. The what of our lives in large part has already been settled, you know? The, the what, what of our life is never the, the big thing. It's the how. The how is the ordinary. How do we enter into our relationship with our wife or our husband or our friend or our boss or our coworkers or the people who work for us? How are we going to enter into those things? Are we going to enter into power and control and being spectacular? I mean, if we pursue the kingdom of God in illegitimate ways, we'll absolutely miss it. Because the power to change the world doesn't subsist in relevance and power in the spectacular. It subsists in vulnerability, which is another way to say it exists and it subsists in love. And vulnerability is a scary thing for us. I mean, nobody likes it. If you say you like vulnerability, then I'm, then you're weird, okay? You know, like that's pathology. It's awful. Vulnerability is awful. It feels awful. Um, I'm convinced that this kind of vulnerability, though, is central to what it means to follow Jesus. It's interesting, in my church, at Redemption Church, we have a small congregation. Probably any given worship morning is a little smaller than this. And, um, but among those, you know, 90, 100 people who are in our worship, there are about 20 of them who are homeless. And they're hardcore homeless people. So these are guys still using drugs, and they, they show up drunk. We bring them in early so we can sober them up a little bit. Um, and get him a shower and clean him up a little bit. And then, then we worship together. And um, I, as these guys started to come into our community, you know, they bring with, you, with them all their problems. So they bring um, alcoholism, drug abuse. Um, lots of them are on the run from the law. Mental illness. Um, I mean, plus, plus the fact that they've just chosen to live outside the normal social norms of society. So you bring that into, you know, rich white suburbanite church, and it's going to cause 
some vulnerability, you know, among the people who have to tell their kids why this guy just, you know, wet himself or whatever happened that day. And I realize it's kind of interesting. I get up really early on Sundays and I work on my sermon and I pray through it and I'm talking through it and practicing it because I believe in it. And um, it used to happen about, you know, 9.30 or 10, I'd start to feel okay. And I would relax and I would pray, God, let us have a great morning. I started to notice that as I got, as the sermon got done, this other anxiety started to rise in me. And when I was kind of done with that and was praying and then getting ready to go engage with the people, my prayers were absurd. I was praying, God, don't let anybody die at church today. Or don't let one rival camp and the other rival camp that are both going to be here get in a knife fight in our parking lot. Please let us not have to call 911 at church today, right? This is my, this is, this is my prayer. It's, it's absurd. But I'll tell you this. I always felt all along through years at this church, I felt like something was wrong. Something was missing until the day those guys showed up. And we instantly became vulnerable. And we put our arms around other vulnerable people. And whatever was wrong vanished. And whatever was missing was suddenly there. Vulnerability is a scary thing and none of us like it. But let me ask you this. Is there any relationship in your life right now that wouldn't become better if y'all could just be a little more vulnerable with each other? We don't do vulnerability in our culture. You know what we do? We numb our vulnerability. There's this teacher named Brene Brown. Anybody heard of Brene Brown? She's fantastic. If, if you like Brene, like you're, you're trying not to dance in your seat right now because I'm talking about vulnerability. Um, she says that when we feel vulnerable, what we want is a beer or a banana nut muffin, you know, or something to cover the pain, right? We want one of those things. She has this famous line from her TED Talk. She says, we are the most in debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. When we feel vulnerable, we drink something, we pop a pill, we go shopping, we hide out in our office, we buy something, we wall off our hearts, we shut people out, we refuse to care too deeply, and that way we don't get hurt. We run from vulnerability. I, I run, personally, I run from vulnerability through perfectionism. That's what I do. If I do it perfect, then you can't critique me, right? If I'll do it perfectly, then I'm safe. I'm invulnerable. In that. My, my perfectionism is it's just an attempt to find control. And the story of Jesus, I mean, think about the story, the whole story, the overarching story of the story of God is about the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe who becomes a vulnerable human, a baby. Can you, I mean, can you think of anything more vulnerable in the world but a baby? He becomes a baby because this is the way to redemption. This is the only way to become human as human is meant to be is through vulnerability but we don't want to do vulnerability it's funny when people describe their experience of vulnerability they use words like excruciating and awful i feel naked i feel exposed this is painful it feels like weakness that's for men in the audience we, we feel vulnerability feels like weakness to us if we're being vulnerable we feel weak when we see it in other people and try to describe it you know what the word is that we use courage when we see vulnerability in others, it looks like raw courage. When we feel it in ourselves, we hate it. In fact, it's the first thing that we look for in others. It's the last thing we want to feel in our, ourselves. We, we see it in other people, and we're just like, whatever, I want one of whatever that guy's having, right? I just, we respond to it. We can't help it. 
All we have to do is turn back to the kingdom of God and the story of Jesus, to the one who became vulnerable for our sake and to get really to the heart of the Christian story. And you see, you find their vulnerability. Anybody will watch football today? You'll watch NFL football and they'll show a shot of the end zone and there will be the dude there with his John 3.16 sign, right? That, and that's right. That is right. That is the heart of it. That's central. The reason God came is love. God loves us. And if we could ever really accept it, own it, that that's just the reality that we can't win it, it's just the way he is, that before we're anything else, a spouse or a sibling or a parent or, or a boss, before we're any other thing that we are in our lives, we are the precious children of God. He loves us. We are worthy of his love because he loves us, because we belong to him. If we ever got our arms around that, if we ever let that be our reality that that God loves us, that he holds us in his hand and that there is nothing that could come between our soul and his love for us, it would give us such a deep sense of our own worthiness and our own lovability that we, I think, could find the courage to be vulnerable, to enter into the world, not through power or control or the spectacular, but through weakness and love and vulnerability. To love is to be vulnerable, and this is how the kingdom comes. To choose vulnerability instead of relevance or power, the spectacular, what it does is it places us right in the place we have to be, exactly where we need to be for God to actually show up and heal our broken hearts and fix what's wrong with us and what's wrong with this world that we live in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us the courage to follow you even into the way of vulnerability. And we're going to wake up tomorrow, and we're going to start in with our weekly and daily routine, and we're going to be faced with a choice over and over and over Will I let myself be seen? Will I risk vulnerability? Can I be weak? Or am I just going to try to control situations and power up and be spectacular and be perfect, be relevant? Oh God, that you would give us the courage just to be weak like you are weak, knowing that when we are weak, we are strong that you are strong in us. And this is how your kingdom comes. Give us that courage, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.